All right, well, good to be with you tonight. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. I'm going to handle this uh, section of Scripture just a little bit differently tonight. Uh, we're going to read the whole story and pray and, and then uh, just uh, make some observations here. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, everybody there? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Well, Stephen, we'll wait for you because that's what we do. I know. No, I'm just kidding. We're not waiting. It's verse 21, chapter 5. I love you, bro. You'll catch up. I know. All right. The Bible says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live so Jesus went with them, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. You can just picture the scene and the grief of the Father, and, and then the expression of trust and faith in Christ, and then just that personal love that Jesus had to minister to this man. But there was a delay. There was an interruption. Verse 25 says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, or that word touch means to grab in the sense of hold on to. If I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Seemed absurd to his disciples because, verse 31 says, but his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you? And you say, who touched me? They're like, really? Are you kidding me? You're, there's people all around you. How is that even possible to know? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So, so this amazing miracle happens. You kind of forget about the ruler of the synagogue and his situation. But then we pick it right back up in verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Could you imagine that? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. I think that is a word that he has for some of us here tonight. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, that's Aramaic, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl, you, you know what happens here, because when Jesus says it, it happens. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that someone should, something should be given her to eat. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we're so touched by this historical account. We know that this is not some myth or fairy tale that was concocted by a human mind. This, these are real events, and they're real people, and they're real demonstrations of mercy and love, and, and they're really instructive for us today 
to be believing people, to be trusting people, trusting and believing in you, casting aside the the fear and the guilt and the shame and the pride that so often restrains us from coming to you humbly in faith. We thank you that these stories, they reveal who you are and we rejoice in that and just, um, it makes us fall in love with you even more deeply. But they speak to your present power for you are the same yesterday, today and forever and And what you did then is the same as what you desire to do now. And we pray in this place, God, as it's consecrated and set aside by your spirit and by your people as we worship and praise you, we ask, Lord, please be as present today as you were then. Allow the the healing virtue to flow in this place. We may not have the hem of your garment to grab onto you, but we can grab onto what your word says about you and the promises that you give, which are even greater than a piece of clothing. We come with a mustard seed of faith, maybe, but we know that when it's placed in you, mountains move. And so all of the needs that are present here tonight, we Just pray that you would, just as the Spirit brooded over the waters of chaos and darkness and and, and you created and it was good, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would just be over every heart here tonight and that you would take the chaos and the darkness and that you would turn it into good. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we, what a wild story this is and and, uh, you know, just, just to kind of reiterate, I know we read it, I know you've probably read it before, it's not unfamiliar territory to you, but, but remember the context a little bit um, here, and Fernando talked about it last week, and I talked about it the week before, you know, Jesus and his disciples were on mission, there was a place for them to go, there was a, a person that needed to, be, needed to be ministered to, and so they went from Capernaum all the way over to the Gadarenes, and and you know, they, they traversed the Sea of Galilee, and it was not an easy crossing of the Sea of Galilee. It was so tumultuous that the disciples, four of them seasoned fishermen, you know, who grew up on the sea, were all fearing for their lives. And, and uh, you know, a, a lot of that obviously was the opposition that was happening in a spiritual sense, because Jesus was going to perform a miracle. He was going to exercise demons from a man who was severely demon-possessed. And of course, you remember the story, just as Jesus had said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Well, they got to the other side, and, and that miracle was performed, and that man was liberated, and he was you know, found to be in his right mind because whenever you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, he takes chaos and disorder, and he makes it order, right? Isn't that how... Isn't that how your life has worked? I'm not saying that all of a sudden everything's perfect. I'm just saying, man, he lines it up. He, his light lines it up. And this man was lined up. He was aligned because the Lord had touched his life. Well, they got back in the boat and they headed across the sea back to the city that was the city of their original, um, you know, not destination, but this was the city that they'd left from, Capernaum. As they were crossing over the sea, there was a multitude of people that were waiting for Jesus to get there. He gets out of the boat. Like, you can picture the scene, right? He gets out of the boat, and immediately, like, they are swarming him. That's what a throng means. It means that he was literally swarmed. People were pressing up against him. There was one particular man who had a real deep, serious need. And look, this is, this is just a possibility. I'm not saying that this is the way it was because this part's not in uh, the historical account, but he may have been present there just waiting for that little bark, that little boat to just come over the edge of the horizon so, so he could present this need to Jesus. His, the need was serious. His daughter, his beautiful little baby, was suffering a sickness that inevitably led to her death. And Jesus came, like I said, the multitude of people surrounded him. This guy weaved his way in somehow, presented his need, and, and you know, we're going to talk about all these details in a little more depth in a minute, but Jesus responded to this man's need, and, 
and followed him, began to follow him to the house. And, and while he was on the way to his house, there was another woman, right? This, this synagogue ruler's daughter was 12 years old, and then there was this unnamed woman who had had this, this affliction for 12 years, who had thought, if I could just get in unnoticed, right, undetected, undeclared, I mean, he's so mighty and so powerful, if I could just grab onto the hem of his garment, that's sufficient because there's that healing power within him. And if I know I can get that close, the issue's going to be dealt with and resolved. And so, so unbeknownst to everybody, this whole thing is happening behind the scenes. And so the woman does. She touches the hem of his garment. The other accounts say the healing virtue of Christ flowed through his garment and touched her and that that affliction that she had had, that flow of blood that she had had for 12 years was immediately dried up. And Jesus knew. He sensed, he sensed that interchange between someone's faith and his power, right? Because he, that, that's how it works. You guys know that tonight. That's how it works. Like you don't just follow a set of prescribed rules and that makes you a Christian. You put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and your connection to him comes Via your faith, your belief in who he is. There's a, in other words, listen, there's a, there's a relationship. There's an encounter that leads to a connection. And he sensed that power flowing from his garment. So he stops everything. And the crowd halts. He says, who touched me? And of course, his disciples, we read that. They were incredulous. They thought, really? Are you kidding me? There's, there's hundreds of people that are smashing up against you. Everyone's touching you. Everyone's touching you, and this has been Mark's account already, right? I mean, there were people that just, they, they just tried to get as close as they could because even if they touched him, they would be healed. And yet he was doing something deeper in this woman's life. We'll talk about it in just a minute. All the while, Jairus is watching all of this transpire, and his, the clock is ticking for him. The clock is ticking for him. He has a little baby girl who's been the light of his life for 12 years, who is sick unto death, and then the worst possible thing happens. He gets, he gets those words, your daughter is dead. I mean, you know, I read that and I think, man, could, couldn't you have like said it a little nicer? I mean, that's just like, what a bomb, right? Dropped on this guy. And, and, and they said, you might as well just leave the teacher alone because, you know, there's, there's no hope there's no hope. The story is over. The possibility of remedying this from the perspective of a miracle is now no longer relevant because the opportunity is over. Don't ever count God out. Don't ever count God out. And so he ministers to this guy. We'll talk about it in just a second. He ministers to this guy. They make their way to the house. He performs this extraordinary miracle and raises this little girl from the dead. And, you know, I read this story. I'll tell you, I've read this story. I've taught this story uh, so many times. But I'm never, I, 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 I never cease to be amazed at the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, you can read the story a million times and it's like, Man, I love him. I love him. Isn't he amazing? Like, isn't he amazing? It never gets old. It never gets old. Reading the Bible never gets old because it's just this constant revelation of how amazing our Savior is. And it doesn't matter if you've read this 50 times and you've walked with Jesus for 50 years. It is still absolutely overwhelming how personal his touch is, right? I mean, you just got to step back for a second and just consider both of these stories. By the way, there's great divine intention here uh, with these two particular people, and we'll discuss that in a minute too, but how personal his touch is, how much he cares. You know, you can walk into, and you know, the, the place where God's People gathered together is not the only place he moves. We know that, right? And I'm not saying that. But, you know, sometimes we can walk into the place where God's people are gathered together and we can just feel, we can feel like we're just another number, like we're unnoticed, that, that you know, we really don't have any personal value and nothing could be further from the truth. Here you are present tonight and the fact is this, he loves you. He loves you and he cares for you. And he knows everything that you've brought into this room. 
He knows every issue, every scene issue that you've declared to people and shared with others, every issue that you've not shared that you've kept to yourself. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all of my heart that he wants to meet your need tonight because that's what he does. He loves to meet our needs. Do you guys believe that this evening? Well, that's good. That's good because belief is how you experience his love. I want you to just consider a couple of things tonight as we we handle this section of scripture just a little differently. I've read it, I've retold it, and now I want you to consider uh, these things. Number one is this, I've said it, I'm gonna say it again, and we're gonna hit it a little deeper. Jesus loves people. Jesus loves people. You know, someone said some time ago, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Like you can just be this walking encyclopedia of God, right? And and you can feel like everyone wants to hear your data dump. People don't want to hear your data dump, but I, I will tell you, they'll be more open when they recognize that you have a heart that sincerely cares for them. And you know, when we consider the miracles of Christ, you know his message was framed in real acts of love and compassion, like, don't ever forget that as you read these stories, what they remind us of is this. The message that he preached was, was built within the framework of real love and compassion. When Christ came on the scene, he did not beat people over the head with a big moral stick. And if anyone had the right to do it, it would have been Jesus, right? I mean, if anyone had the right to come in on the scene and say, hey man, you guys are, sorry for the word here, you guys are really screwed up. Like you're just messed up. You are so far from God and you have no idea how displeasing your miserable, immoral lives are. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? If anyone had a right to speak like that, it would have been him, but he didn't. He didn't. I'm not saying to you tonight that that he shied away from the truth because, because, of course, he never shied away from the truth, but the truth always came with grace, right? The woman with the issue, uh, excuse me, the woman who was caught in adultery was brought before Jesus. That whole story rolls out because the Pharisees, Pharisees are like, get the big moral stick out, you know? Get the big moral stick out. She deserves capital punishment. Beat her over the head with it. And he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then she's standing before him And he says to her, after they all leave, right, from the oldest to the youngest, because they're convicted of their own sin, he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. He says, neither do I accuse you, or neither do I condemn you, that's grace, go and sin no more, that's truth, right? He always always combined these two things together. Two people that just deeply needed the compassion of Christ, Jairus, his daughter is sick unto death. It's his only daughter, other gospel accounts tell us. She's 12 years old, and you can just kind of feel the pathos of this father, right? The anguish of a father whose baby girl is suffering. His only child, his his little baby girl. You can imagine that this man had cried to God, right? He'd poured his heart out to God. He dedicated his life to the service of God. You know, it's, it doesn't say this, but you can imagine him saying, God, I've lived for you. I've lived for you. I've laid my life down. I've prioritized you. You know, would you consider that and be merciful and heal my baby girl? You know, as he watched her suffer, you can imagine he went through some of the stages of of grief, right? There's denial. This can't be happening. It's probably not a really bad sickness. And then it progresses, progresses, it's really bad. And that denial turns into anger. Like, God, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to our family? You know she's our only child. And then there's bargaining, right? I mean, sometimes as parents... When your child is sick, it's like one of the first things you pray, what do you pray? You're like, God, take this from my child and give this to me. You know, spare, spare spare my child. And yet when he comes to Jesus, you know, he's pleading, the Bible says, he is begging. If there's anything that hits the heart of a parent, it's when their child 
is suffering. And I, what I don't see in this man, I don't see anger, I don't see entitlement, I just see a heart that is humbled, a heart that understands and recognizes that there is nowhere left for, for him to turn but to the person of Jesus Christ. And then this woman, this woman who has the issue of blood, such a, a, a very different situation. Her body had been ravaged by this affliction for 12 years. And the Bible says that she'd spent all of her money on doctors and, and various medical methods to try to resolve this issue. So her body, think about ancient medication, right? Or ancient uh, medicinal methods. I mean, they just weren't pretty 2,000 years ago. It was not a pretty thing. And so you can imagine this woman's physical body had been ravaged by these doctors, and she was now in a place where she was absolutely financially broken. She'd spent all of her money. She had this continual loss of blood, so she was anemic. She was weak. I want you to remember that from the perspective of the law, the Bible says that when a woman had that flow of blood on a, her regular cycle, that she couldn't be touched by her husband. She couldn't be touched by others because she was considered for this time to be ceremonially unclean. And so if she was married, we're not sure that she was married, but if she was, she you know, was untouched by her husband. Other people could not put their arm around her, could not give her a hug. She could not reach out and touch other people because if she did, they would be ceremonially unclean. And then anything that she touched would be considered unclean as well. So if she touched a table, you couldn't touch the table. You know, if you were in the store and she was buying something or placed her, her hand on something, you couldn't touch that either. And probably the most difficult thing for this woman was that she was forbidden to enter into the place of worship. She couldn't go into the temple. She couldn't go into the synagogue. She was considered to be unclean. You can imagine. You can imagine the loneliness and the suffering as she'd been ostracized from her family, from her friends, and from her society. Two very different situations. For one family, uh, there had been 12 years of this little girl being the light of their life, and it was as if this light was about to be quenched. And for this woman, we don't know her name, it was 12 years of darkness as she had suffered severe affliction. But the amazing thing here is that Jesus loves them both, and Jesus ministers to them both. You know, I've said this to you, and it is true, his miracles validated his message, and they also declared his deity, but his miracles also express his nature, that he is loving and compassionate. He is tender-hearted. You know, both of these people had significance in the eyes of Christ, and they were two very different people. We're going to talk about that next. Yet Jesus made space. He prioritized their needs. He took time out of his schedule, his itinerary, and he went out of his way. I'm just saying to you tonight, Jesus was not too busy for them, and Jesus is not too busy for you. He's not too busy for you. I think sometimes we have this, this sense, this feeling, you know, where he's probably got a lot in his hands. You know, you've got a war in Ukraine that you're dealing with, and there's inflation in the United States, and... And there's all these geopolitical issues and complications and problems. And, and you know, when you start thinking like that from a, from a big global perspective, your needs, they, they shrink and they shrink a little bit more. And then they shrink a little bit more to the point where it's like, well, I don't even know if this is worth bringing to him. But the fact is this, you know, he can focus because he's omniscient. He can focus on the macro and the micro simultaneously. He can be absolutely on the throne and in control of everything that's happening on a global scale, and he can be absolutely perfectly focused on those issues in your life, small and large. And so tonight, I want to simply remind you, he is present with us. He loves you. There's nothing going on in your life that has escaped his knowledge and his care, and that should compel you to want to bring it to him. Can you say amen tonight? Amen. Right. The second thing that I recognize 
uh, as I surveyed this story, is that his love is without partiality. His love, and I know some of you are like, man, they are. These two people are so different. Can you think of a greater contrast? And I just want to suggest to you tonight, I don't think that this is an accident. I don't think that these events rolled out the way that they did, just in an arbitrary way. I think that the contrast was intended uh, by Christ to teach us a lesson. And I just, I want you to think how different these two individuals are, right? And, you know, you guys are smart. You've already put this together yourself. But you have Jairus who's uh, the ruler of a synagogue, right? By the way, the synagogue in Capernaum was probably the most significant synagogue in Israel. For sure, it was the most significant synagogue in the northern part of Israel. Remember, I've said to you, Capernaum was the major city in Galilee. Um, It was a crossroads from everything that was flowing from Europe um, and also everything that was flowing from Asia, everything going down into lower Israel or over to Egypt um, would have come through Capernaum. And so it was a bustling city. It was a, a wealthy city. It was a city where there were high taxes, right? Matthew was a tax collector who was making bank off of all the commerce that was coming through Capernaum. Well, you know, you would imagine, uh, and if you go to Israel with us in March 2023, we'll stand on the foundations of this ancient synagogue You can just kind of get the perspective that this man was somebody, right? I mean, this man was a significant man. It was a significant synagogue, and he had a high place of position and authority and power. He would have been, therefore, very well-respected. He had religious priority, he had social priority, and he was a man, so he had gender priority. Uh, That's really the way it rolled in the ancient world. Big difference between being a man and being a woman. So this guy comes in, uh, you know, maybe, maybe because people knew him, there was some space that was made. He probably always got the best table in the restaurant just when he showed up. A table was always prepared for him. And he rolls in as the crowd is thronging Jesus. You know, it, it may be that people just made a way for Jairus to come because he was just such a significant person. And then on the other hand, you have someone who is like literally on the other hand, I mean, on the far end of the spectrum, you have this suffering woman who has no religious superiority. In fact, she has religious inferiority. She is ceremonially unclean from a religious perspective. She's lived her life for 12 years being considered Uh, considered to be not in the right condition to even have communion or fellowship with God. She was socially unnoticed. She had gender inferiority. And then not only that, but you'll notice as well, she's not even named. She's not even named. Jairus has a name. We know who he was. And this woman, she's not even named. She's on the other end of the spectrum. I'm saying this tonight to say to you, one seemed to have every right to come. The other seemed to have no right to come. One seemed to have every right, right, every, every, every reason. He had a, a list of things that he could have pulled out and said, well, you know what, um, I should have priority, um, and you should pay attention to me because from a human perspective, Jesus, this is who I am. And then on the other hand, you have this woman who's like, man, I, I have nothing on the list. I have nothing on the list. You know, Satan loves for us to either perceive ourselves as too good for Jesus or too worthless for Jesus, Satan loves for us to either perceive ourselves as too good for Jesus or too worthless for Jesus. Both are lies to keep us from Jesus, right? I mean, we can have this perspective where maybe some of you are like that tonight. You're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I'm basically a good person, you know? I mean, I'm not like other people. I'm not, I'm not like those miserable sinners, and, and you, you, you all know you got a list of the people that you compare yourself to, and they just, you happen to pick from like the worst of society, how convenient for you, how convenient for you, right? But in all of that, in all of that, we can have this self-inflated view of ourselves that keeps us, keeps us from the one who is able to really heal us and order our lives and give us real life. And then on the other hand, some of us were so overwhelmed with shame and guilt and self-loathing 
self-loathing. You know, some of us in this room loathe ourselves so much that maybe there's even thoughts of physical harm. We just think that lowly of ourselves. And then you know when you're in that place, what the devil loves to do, he loves to leverage those thoughts and bring you to this, this condition, this place of thinking where it's like, man, I'm not, I, I, Lord, I'd come to you, but I am, I am so unworthy, right? I am so unworthy. I am so loathsome. You know, I am so far on the other end of the spectrum. And what I love about this picture is he takes both of them in his arms, and that's what he does, right? He takes these two people who, from a human perspective, are on the far ends of the spectrum, and he wraps his, arm, his arms around both of them because Jesus loves without partiality. He loves without partiality. Jesus does not evaluate people according to human standards or criteria, and neither should we. They both mattered to him, and, you know, it's not, it's not always that outright sin keeps us from Christ, but in either case, whether we feel worthless or we feel too worthy, the truth is this, we need to move out of our lives anything that would keep us from coming to the one, the only one, who is able to heal us. I look at the way that they came, and I think for all of their differences, they were united ultimately in the way that they came to Jesus. And I, I know that you noticed this as well, they both came humbly, right? Uh, the Jairus, who was the leader of the synagogue, he fell at Jesus' feet, he begged Jesus. Um, the truth is this, that his humility may have cost him a lot. Just coming to Christ might have cost him because most likely, all the way back in the beginning of this book, you remember there was a man who was in the synagogue who had a withered hand, it was on the Sabbath, and Jesus called the man to stretch out his hand and there was a huge controversy over Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath. And probably, this is just speculation, but probably Jairus was caught up in that. And he might have been on that side where it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, who does this guy think he is controverting our traditions, even if it means healing someone? And now he's in the place where he needs the healing or his daughter needs the healing. And so what does he do? Well, he comes humbly. He falls at the feet of Jesus and begs. And then I think about the woman, how she came discreetly, and she came lowly, right? She came lowly physically. I mean, she didn't say if I could just touch the garment that's on his shoulders. She didn't say if I could just get part of the side of his garment. She's like, man, if I could just get to the, the bottom, the edge of, of his garment. She came low and she came discreet. She did not want to be noticed, what I appreciate about the two of them is that they were wise enough not to let anything keep them from the healer. They came humbly and they came uh, in a way where they were worshipful. I want to encourage you tonight to come humbly before Jesus. That means be surrendered to him. When you're tempted to think, man, I can fix this problem myself or this is just too horrible to bring to the Lord. I want to remind you of Psalm 51:17, where the Bible says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Isn't that good? Maybe tonight your heart is just broken over things. The eyes of God rest upon you tonight. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, Peter speaking, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, you guys know how this goes? Yeah, right, yeah, that's right, you got it. God resists the proud. Hey, how many of you wanna be resisted by God tonight? Raise your hand. No, you don't wanna be resisted by God. Put your hand down. That, that, was, like a, that was like one of those things, right? You for sure, and I know, you, I know you're messing. You do not wanna be resisted by God. And so what's the pathway of not being resisted by God? Well, avoid pride, self-exaltation, depending upon ourselves to resolve our issues and instead choose humility, choose to come to him humbly. You know, sometimes, sometimes I, I hear people say, you know what, my prayer is just that God would humble me. And I'm like, well, yeah, he'll answer that. I mean, he's more than happy to answer that. But you know, the exhortation of scripture is not to pray and to ask God to humble you. The exhortation of scripture is humble yourself. Humble yourself. You know, don't, don't wait for God to have to do it in your life. 
Be preemptive, be preemptive, and come to him humbly. Somebody once said that, and I think it was C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's not thinking of yourself at all. And I think that in some, you know, to some extent that's true. But these people were thinking about themselves and they were thinking about their need. It's just that their approach was to trust the Lord with it. And so Peter goes on to say, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Listen, the, the miracle, uh, the answered prayer that you've been longing for, maybe the holdup is this. Maybe it's because... Maybe the delay is because you've not been coming to God in a humble way. The second thing that I appreciate about the two of them, and uh, the second thing that I think that they have in common is this, they came in faith. They came in faith. Uh, Jairus came to Jesus and he said, come and lay your hands on her and she will be healed. Don't you love that affirmation? Like just believing, all it takes is for you to be present and to place your hands on my daughter and she will be healed. And then, you know, in like manner, the woman who had that 12-year affliction, she was thinking this, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed. The second thing here that we see that they have in common is this, they both believed. They both believed. I want to remind you, belief is the condition for the miracle-working power of Christ in your life. Belief is the condition for the miracle-working power of Christ in your life. When you come to Christ, and I'm not just talking about that very first time putting your trust and faith in him to be born again. By the way, that requires belief as well, right? You're not born again by the power of God's Spirit without believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but, but your faith or your lifestyle of belief doesn't end there. It continues over the course of your life. Every day, every day we are faced with opportunities to either believe him and trust him or to resist him and to deny him. And make no mistake about it, the events in your life are purposed for this very thing. Now, I was just considering this um, this particular aspect of this story this week, and I was thinking about Nazareth. You know, we're going to hit uh, this story next week in Mark chapter 6, but, but some of you are familiar with it. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus was in his own city, he was, he was uh, restricted from working great miracles because of the unbelief of the people. In fact, this is how the scripture says it. Now, he could do no mighty work there. Like, that's heavy. That's sad, right? He could do no, that should perk up your attention. You should be thinking, man, what is the condition for that to happen? Because I don't want to be there. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. What was it that restricted the people of Nazareth, his own city where he was raised? What restricted them from really experiencing the fullness of the power of Christ? Well, it was the absence of their own faith. Faith is the language by which you speak to God. And you know that this is the case. James, for instance, says uh, in chapter 1 of his epistle, he's writing to, to uh, a group of Jews who put their trust and faith in Christ across various churches. And he says, if anyone among you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach. But listen, when you ask, let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith. Because if it's not faith, that person who's asking should not expect to receive anything. He's like a double-minded person, unstable in all of his ways. The second thing that I see that they have in common that's something for sure for us to consider tonight is this. Are we walking by faith? Are we really trusting in the Lord? You say, man, I want to see miracles in my life. And I say, well, the miracles are available to us according to his wisdom, according to his will, always in his time, but they're conditioned upon our faith, our willingness to entrust those situations and issues to him. I think, you know, sometimes as I survey Christianity 
in a global sense. There are times where I think, man, there are so many miraculous things that are happening in so many various countries, and yet it seems as if in the United States, some of that miraculous power of God isn't as tangible as I think we wish that it was. And why is that the case? Why does it seem that there are so many mighty things that are done in this place and not necessarily in another place? And I think, you know, some of that may come back to the reality uh, that as Americans, we have so much available to us, we really don't need God. Right? I mean, hey, we've got, we got financial security for the most part. Uh, we've got great medical systems. I'm not knocking these things necessarily, but you know, the, the physical blessings that we pray for in our lives, if we're not careful, can actually keep us from the supernatural, spiritual moving of God's Holy Spirit that is obviously even greater, right? Don't you want that in your life tonight? Don't you want to see him move in a miraculous, supernatural, powerful way? I think the exhortation from this story this evening is we need to put our trust and faith in him. We need to believe. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. The fourth thing that I recognize in this story is this. His delay has meaning. His delay has meaning. I think if you're Jairus and you're watching this situation roll out, definitely you're frustrated, right? You're thinking, man, I, my need is really significant. This woman's, yeah, I mean, 12 years with an affliction, that's really bad, but my daughter's about to die. And this delay is, this delay is um, it's in, more than inconvenient. It may cost my daughter her life. You know, I think delayed prayers are really difficult for us to deal with. You ever have God delay something in your life? Raise your hand tonight if, if that's you, all right. Did you, did you enjoy that? No, did that, did that take you to your happy place? No, no, it probably didn't. I mean, you know, you can, you can list the emotions that are connected to God's delay in your life. Frustration, uh, sometimes doubt. Sometimes you wonder, you know, if God's even paying attention to what's happening in your life. But every delay in your life and every delay in the lives of these two people had divine intention. Like everything he does, he does with meaning and purpose, even those times where he delays. So for instance, listen, for her, for the woman who had the issue of blood, she gets healed and then he stops, he stops the entourage from moving. He pauses and this is what he does. He calls her out. He didn't have to call her out and by the way, there's no other record uh, in the gospel accounts that he ever called another person out who touched him for physical healing. But he pauses for this moment. He brings the spotlight on her. He focuses on her for two reasons. One is this, he wanted to expose her hidden faith. And the second thing is this, he wanted her to experience his acceptance. Right, he, he knows she's had the faith. The faith has healed her. And yet what he does is he provides an opportunity for her to step out from the shadows, out of the darkness, and into the light, and to be vocal about her faith, to acknowledge that, that she had put her trust and faith in him. There was healing in that place for her to come out of that darkness, but, but she came out of that darkness so he could wrap his arms of love in a proverbial sense around her. And he did so with these words. He said these words, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, I don't know how this felt to her, but it's possible that the words of Christ had just as much of an impact on her as the physical healing he performed. It may be that when he said daughter, right, acceptance and love and then peace, Peace was the last thing that this woman had experienced for 12 years. And so it's not just the physical aspect that Jesus brings healing to, it's also to the condition of her heart. He causes his light to shine on these areas that she needed him to work in. You know, Jesus is like a surgeon. He's like a surgeon. 
He'll focus in on areas of our heart that sometimes we conceal and keep to ourselves. And he'll bring those things out so that he can bring the healing to the place where it really needs to be experienced. I want to encourage you tonight. I just want to ask you the question, what area has God, what area has Christ been focusing on in your life? How has he been bringing his light to bear on certain areas in your heart? And then how have you been responding to that? Have you been endeavoring to conceal and to hide and to kind of drift back into the darkness? Or are you allowing those things to be brought out into the light so that they can uh, be touched by his miraculous power? I think, you guys with me tonight on that? I think for Jairus, uh, probably, you know, these words that he heard as this delay happens, uh, maybe as he's frustrated, as, you know, the clock is, is ticking on his daughter, you know, and then he hears the words, your daughter is dead, hardest words, hardest words a, a, a parent could ever hear. As he's watching this situation transpire before his eyes, right, this woman's healed and it's a good thing. Jesus calls her out and supplies that beautiful healing to her heart, and that's a good thing. And yet, and yet there's that delay that has cost him, from his perspective, the life of his daughter. You know, I, I want to say this tonight. It's not an easy thing to say necessarily, but it's true. God's delay in your life may mean his healing in someone else's. Right? Yeah. God's delay in your life may mean his healing in someone else's. Sometimes you know we can be so focused on what we want him to do in our lives, and then when he's not necessarily coming through on our time frame, we get frustrated, but the truth is this, God's working on more than just the situation in our life, he's working on the lives of others as well. And we as children of God need to be, we need to be at peace, with the providence of God in our life to the extent where we say, you know what, Lord, I trust you. I trust your timing. You know, in that sense, having peace before him and silence before him, knowing that he's not only gonna be faithful with our family, but he's gonna be ministering to the hearts of others as well. I think this man's heart for sure was broken in, in grief until he heard the words from Jesus, do not be afraid, only believe. And these were the this was the only thing that he could anchor his life to, right? Here he's in the midst of this uh, serious suffering. His daughter is dead, and the only thing that he has to hold on to are the words of Jesus. The only light in the midst of this very dark time are these very uh, beautiful words of Christ, do not be afraid, only believe. And then he chooses the right thing, he follows Jesus, right, holding on to his word. It's the only light that he had in the midst of this great darkness. Follows Jesus as he gets to his house. Uh, they're, they're confronted by this great tumult, this scene where these professional wailers are crying and uh, probably just a chaotic situation. And then Jesus says, hey, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And there's ridicule and there's scoffing. And what does he do? He takes the ridiculers, he takes those who are laughing him to scorn, he sets them outside, he turns the volume off, he shuts off the noise. By the way, that's what you need to do. When you have those voices in your life that are discouraging you from trusting the Lord, you need to turn those voices off, you need to close the door on those voices, and you need to choose to follow the Lord. This is what happens. He takes the man and his wife and three of his disciples into the room and he speaks an Aramaic word over this girl, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl arise. Also translated uh, in a more personal sense, my little lamb arise. And this little girl is brought, brought to life right before the eyes of her parents. Listen, he's that compassionate. He's that compassionate. He loves you that much. Whoever you are tonight, right? Maybe you fit in that category of Jairus. You know, you're, you have religious significance. You have social significance. You have prominence and place 
you know, from a human perspective. And then maybe on the other hand, you're kind of like the woman who has the issue of blood, right? No one knows your name. You feel like there's just this great insignificance that hangs over your life. If you were to create a list of all the reasons why God should answer your prayers, there's nothing on the list. And, and the truth is this, he is able to put his arms around both people, both ends of the spectrum, and pull them close to his heart and supply the power for healing that is needed in this place tonight. If we come humbly and if we come in faith. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we do trust that you are, you're present you're present here, and you're good and faithful and full of compassion and tender mercies, and there's no one like you. We trust you. We trust that, that you love us and that your love is without partiality and that we can come humbly and in faith just as we are tonight. We don't need a list of, of reasons that, that justify why you should answer prayer in our lives. We can come with the simplicity of faith in Jesus, and that is sufficient. It's sufficient. And we do ask, just as you were so powerfully present in the lives of these people 2,000 years ago that you, would, that you would, in a similar way, be present tonight for those of us who just need, need to stretch our faith out and touch the hem of your garment. To bring the the grief and the sorrow and the, the weariness and the confusion and the darkness to you and, and to believe that you're able to lift it and that your light can shine once again. Tonight, willing to cling to the words that you speak, that you've spoken, and to follow you wherever you will lead us, to follow by faith, to know that we don't have to be the ones who see everything, but that we can trust you and place our hand in your hand, knowing that you will never fail us, you will never falter in fulfilling a promise, that you are always good. Tonight I I just think it, it would be wrong for us not to close our time together without an opportunity to stretch our need out in faith and, and to seek Him, to seek Him for that supernatural and divine touch and that expression of love and mercy and You have to know tonight that you're loved by Jesus. He loves you. I don't know what your needs are tonight. I, I don't know if they're, they're physical needs or they're emotional needs. I don't know tonight if they're family needs. What I do know is that he is here And he's available to you. And so tonight, I'm just going to, I want to pray. I want to pray with you tonight, not just for you, but I want to pray with you. And I want to give you an opportunity to, to take a step of faith, to come humbly and, and in a disposition of belief like Jairus did and like this unnamed woman did. And so I want to encourage you tonight, if there's something that you need to bring to him, some area of your life that just needs his healing virtue to flow, some issue that you have, 
Would you let him work in your life tonight? I want to encourage you to, just to stand up right now and come forward to the front. And, and together, just I want to lift this need up to the Lord. And I'm not asking you tonight to say what it is. You don't have to say what it is. You can say it to him, and that's sufficient. But we're going to pray tonight. And so if this is you. Stand up right now. Come forward to the front. I want to pray with you. If you can tonight, you don't have to do this, but if you can, I'm going to kneel tonight. And, and uh, if you can and you want to join me in just kneeling before the Lord, and we're just going to pray. We're going to pray you're precious to, to God. You're precious to God. More precious than really you'll, you'll ever be able to fathom. Tonight, you can know that you are because he sent his son, loved you so much. He loves you so much that he delivered his own son to the cross. And if he didn't spare his own son, why would he withhold any good thing from your life? We're going to pray together and... stretch your heart out and your need out to him and you know it may be in this time of prayer that he speaks a word to you a very specific word and it may, may be a word of encouragement it may be a word of healing maybe a word of guidance and direction it may be a, a piece to the puzzle that's been missing for you he may supply it tonight when you come to him in faith, it opens up the, it just opens up the heavens. It opens up the conduits of heaven for him to pour out into your life what you need. And, and so don't doubt. You have a, a word given to you by God tonight. Don't doubt that it's him. It is him. Father, we are so thankful tonight that we can come to you and we can come just as we are and we can come in our failure and in our shame or we can come in our grief, we can come in our confusion. We can come in the darkness as the clouds just seem to sometimes billow over our lives. We can come in our struggle, we can come in, in our sense of loss we can come with the burden that we bear for other people. And we believe, we believe tonight, we believe that you're present. We believe that, that as we're gathered together in Jesus' name, that you are with us in a very special way. We believe tonight that all of your promises are yes and amen for those who are in Christ. We believe that you've opened up the heavens, you've given us access to call out and to pray and to lift up our petition and supplication. And tonight we humble ourselves before you. We're not leaning on our righteousness. We're not leaning on our service to you. We don't come with entitlement or an attitude that we deserve anything. We come believing that you are a compassionate, loving, merciful, tender-hearted God. We come knowing that your love flows. It flows eternally with no end. There's no stopping it. And we want your love, Lord, to be like a shower, a waterfall over our lives. We come trusting that as we lift our need to you with gratitude and thanksgiving, that first, the supernatural peace of God will guard our hearts and minds, but, but that, God, you're going to hear. And in some way, in some time, you are going to answer. And that may very well be right now. And so we pray tonight for every need that's represented. We pray that you would bring the healing, that you would work the miracle, that you would reveal yourself, that you would break the chains that the adversary has been binding hearts with 
that there would be renewal, that there would be life, that, that the, the stone that is closed over these lives would in fact be rolled away, that these hearts would be able to beat for you, that these lungs would breathe for you, that hands would be lifted in praise and adoration and worship, that this would be the day of new beginnings, a new thing, God, that you would work in these lives. For your mercies are new every single morning. We pray that you would remove the obstacles that have been blocking the way. We pray, God, that you would rebuke the adversary and cause him to flee. We pray, God, that you would fill hearts with love where there's been bitterness and forgiveness. We pray, God, that there would be unity and life and selflessness and grace. God, we pray for for children that are wayward. We pray tonight would be the night that their eyes would be open, that they would hear the voice of the Savior and that they would be drawn to him. We pray, God, that you would work these miracles, all of them, for every needy heart, we pray tonight, that there would be wonders that would be worked for your glory and for your glory alone. May God be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.